welcome to the Scottish Clans. I'm Clint. Thank you for joining me today. Today, we are going to be discussing a unique group of kindreds within Scotland. But before I get to that, let me give a shout out to my sponsor, USA Kilts. If you have any desire to wear anything on your body that expresses your pride in your Scottish heritage, in your, or, or maybe like Welsh or Irish, because they branch out, but they focus on the Scottish, that's their specialty. Their specialty is kilts, and they make dang fine kilts, so go to usakilts.com if you want to get yourself some of that stuff. Or you can go over to YouTube, and they check out their YouTube channel, which is USA Kilts and Celtic Traditions. Lots of good content on there. I, I uh, watch them fairly regularly. Haven't, haven't scratched the surface of all their content, because they've got a lot on there, but they have some good content on there. So I recommend them to you. Go check them out. USA Kilts and Celtic Traditions on YouTube, or usakilts.com. All right, guys, uh, let's, first of all, I got to give a shout out to somebody who took some time to watch the YouTube, ver YouTube version of the last episode, which was on the Reed's Wire Fray. His name is Alan Conaghy. I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. He, uh, his last name is spelled C-O-N-N-N. O-C-H-I-E. It looks like a phonetic spelling of the Gaelic, the original way of saying Duncan. But I don't know if it's if he says Conachy, 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 like guttural, Conachy. That seems like the least likely one. So Alan, if you're listening to this, feel free, but I'm giving you a shout out. Now he had he took the time to watch the video version of the last episode. And he took me to task on a few things. I'm gonna. There's three things in here. I want to just break them down and and give a, a quick response. <coughs> Excuse me. So the YouTube clip. So he he jumps into this. The the what we're gonna term the Battle of Reedswire or the Reedswire fray being the last battle between England and Scotland, which is how I titled it on the YouTube version. The video, guys. I express doubt in that video or in that podcast episode of whether this is really the last battle. A, I thought battle was a little bit big scale sounding. And I and I did say this in that episode. It, it was kind of small. It was a small deal to make it sound like the Battle of Bannockburn. You know, it was not, it was not like they're just not even in the same category of when we're talking about scale. And he mentioned that in here. It was like, it was a skirmish between border mar march wardens. Yeah, I, I can totally go along with that. Uh, he actually throws out that he feels like Dunbar, the Battle of Dunbar during the Cromwellian invasion of Scotland was actually the last full-scale, hey, we're the English, you're the Scottish, we're going to come in and, and slug it out with you. Um, my thoughts on that is it, maybe I did actually go after reading his response to that. I went and looked up the Battle of Dunbar. So here's, my, here's the way. I know that Cromwell did gain control of the English government. But it was part of a bigger conflict that was far from settled. And it was a civil conflict within England. So, yeah, yeah, I could totally see his point here. And, I, and I'm not even going to say that he's wrong at, at all. I would say that maybe it was a, there's a little bit more going on between, in the same way, like comparing it to the Battle of Pinky Clue. If you Google last battle between England and Scotland, which I may have done, you will find the Battle of Pinky Clue comes up on a lot of the re results from that Google search. And that was like 
Henry VIII, just full-born. I'm just going to just take you to the Scots. Scots lost big in that one. And that was during the, the 1600s and, and this War of the Three Kingdoms that's going on. There's a lot of strife. It was far from settled who was going to be in charge. We get Charles I and what happens to him. And there's a lot of uh, the English themselves aren't on this. Not all the English are on the side of Cromwell. And, and you could argue, like, were they ever all on the same side? I don't know there, if anybody in any country is ever all on the same side. But so I'm not I'm not going to say that it, the, he has he I think he has a good case. Am I willing to uh, I don't know enough to commit yet to either back that claim or or argue against it. That's what I'm that's the position I should. I need to research that a little bit more. I will say he's like totally right on the, the scale thing, which I which I had mentioned. Um, the next thing he says is, was it really a Rutherford clan action? And I'm not going to go into the whole concept of, are we counting it as a clan action? Like the word clan, like using the word clan. We, I've taught, we've beat that to death. Um, if you're super nitpicky about it, then you can say surname, family, whatever. He says it was just the Burgess of Jedburgh and his sons. And I haven't confirmed that. I did look at one source that made it look like it was the Burgess of Jedburgh, who I think maybe it was a Thomas Rutherford. His sons probably were involved, but then, but then there was giving the source gave a, a Rutherford of this, a Rutherford of that, and it looked like there was a little bit broader kindred. It looks like there were some actual cadet branches joining in the fray, but then he mentions and probably very accurately that Jedburgh was a royal borough, and and there would have been all sorts of people coming out to fight that had no blood connection to the Rutherfords. So to that, I'd like to bring up a, a concept. I'd like to challenge a, a misconception that I think is prevalent. And that is, let's compare that to a Highland clan. Let's go to the McPhersons, the McPherson of Clooney. And if whenever he went to battle, he would have had the, the core of his, the core of that force may have been centered around a McPherson kindred, but numbers wise, there'd have been all sorts of people who were from the area where McPherson of Clooney has power, who would have been in there maybe for more feudal reasons, or maybe they're loyal to the clan as a kindred. It's not, it's and there, it's a mix. It's not tidy. But my point here is that that force would have never been, it never, never would have been all McPherson's, maybe in a very small scale cattle raid, it would have. And even then, I'd have a hard time believing that there wasn't like a guy here and a guy there that we know they're 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 handy when you start mixing it up with folks. And let's let's they're good they're good to have along if we're going to get in a conflict. And and may not have any connection, but maybe a, a small scale cattle raid might be the closest thing to a purely McPherson. That's what we got. We got the young chief who needs to go out and prove himself. So we're gonna. We're going to go raid somebody else's territory and take their cows and he's going to lead us. And it's going to be mostly his close kindred. But even if you look at um, Michael Newton's Warriors of the Word and he just breaks down Gallic society and he, he actually breaks down clan structure. And he says if a chief has so many taxmen, let's say he's got five taxmen underneath him. Three of them might be somehow closely related to him, maybe a cousin or a second cousin or maybe even a brother. But then two of those five might be not related to him. So my my response is, was it ever purely, a, a, like if you bring up any kind of sizable force, anything more than a hundred people, was it ever all one kindred? No, it wasn't ever. 
And in this case, if so, I don't know. So there is, I'm leaving it to you guys. Who wants to go research who exactly was involved in that? Was it just the the Burgess of, of Jedburgh, whose name was Rutherford, and his sons? Was that, was that as far as the kindred extended? In that case, Alan's right. This was not a clan action. But if there were more distant kindreds of his who were following this, their senior member of the kindred, into battle, along with a bunch of people from Jedburgh who had who were not related, now we're starting to look kind of similar to what other clan actions, what we would consider clan actions would look like. So that's all I got to say on that one. The last one, I just got to eat it. I just got to eat it, guys, because he said, you mentioned the Armstrongs and Elliots. And this is kind of like an afterthought, like a side thought, but I, but I was still wrong on it because I was like, oh, the, the West March kind of seems like those clans over there get a lot of the attention. And I said, like the Armstrongs and Elliots. He says, actually, those are Middle March guys. So I looked it up on a map like you do. And turns out he was right. Turns out, so I had them correct in my head because Armstrong and Elliot territory is fairly west on the west part of the border between Scotland and England. But the boundary between the Middle March and the West March actually went way farther than I thought it had. So really, and if you're new to this whole talking about the border between England, Scotland and the March system, just really quick, they both the Scottish and the English side broke that frontier area down into three sections, a West, Middle and East March. On both sides, each March theoretically had a March warden and these March wardens would come together and they'd work things out and try to have some semblance of order and justice on the border. Often they were neck deep in the local situation and just as involved in the partisan conflicts as anybody else was. But uh, so what definitely wasn't tidy, that's for sure. And it rarely ever is. But the I just saw that actually the total number of miles that the West, that on the English-Scottish border that forms the West March, it's not very far. The West March isn't very big as far as the border with England and Scotland. The Middle March makes up the lion's share of the border with with England. And it comes so far down that it actually does cut. It comes right into where the Armstrongs and Elliots were. Probably there was some on either side, but but definitely it came down a lot farther than I thought. So I had the Armstrongs and Elliots in the right place on the map in my head, but I did not have where that border went between the Middle and West March. So thank you, Alan Conachy, for your feedback there. I'm just happy that I've got people that educated and that knowledgeable listening to my stuff. I'm flattered, Alan. I hope you keep listening. And if I mess up again, I hope you jump in there and correct me. And I'd sure appreciate you being a part of our group here. So yeah, I'm... I'd have never thought when I was first starting these things that I would have the group of people listening to this that I that I do. And I'm so grateful for all you guys who, who listen to this and contribute, even if you're a new guy and you're just throwing out the most basic questions. Sometimes a new guys ask the best questions. So please don't hesitate to jump in and become part of the conversation. Now, let's get on with talking about this clan cluster that we're going to get into here. Now, we're, well, we're just to cut to the chase, we're going to be talking about kindreds that are descended from Flemish settlers in Scotland. Now, isn't this interesting? I don't know whether you think it is or not. I think it's interesting because these guys produce some uh, very influential kindreds in Scotland. We might even call them clans. Um, they're usually, let's talk about the story about how they get up into Scotland. Usually, we, they're part of a group of people we just lump together and we call them all Normans. 
as though it was one homogenous group. The more I've learned, I found out that's a false conception, a misconception even. So we've already discussed in earlier episodes, a while ago, we discussed the Breton contingent within the Normans. And so descended from those Bretons, you have the Elliots and the Stuarts. So once again, I just barely mentioned the Elliots as far as, a, as far as a notorious border kindred. The Stuarts, I mean, I don't, do we need to really talk about how big of a deal they were in Scotland? I don't think so. Now, let's go to the other side. So the, the Bre- Brittany is on the west of Normandy, if you're looking at the, the map of France. To the east, you have Flanders. And that's where we're going to get some of these people that we talk about today. So they jump in with the Normans. Now, am I saying that all Flemish settlers came with the Norman invasion? No, I am not. But the ancestors of these clans did. And we'll talk about which specific clans those were later. They, they're coming with the Normans. They come into England through conquest. They go into Wales via conquest. These, and I'm specifically talking about these Flemish people. They find themselves settling by, settled by Henry I in around the year 1100. They're settled in Pembroke, the Pembroke part of Wales. They settle in there. And maybe a generation or so later is when they followed David I up into Scotland. And by invitation. So the Normans in Scotland are a different story. And when I say Normans, I'm talking about actual Normans, talking about Bretons, Flemish. They, they come into Scotland under very different circumstances than they go into the other countries within the Isles. They come into English by conquest. They go into Wales by conquest. The Ireland is a little bit of a mix. If you want to know, if you really want to do a deep dive of the Norman experience in Ireland, I got two channels to recommend to you. You have Philip that runs Irish medieval history and Mike, Michael, Mike, that runs clans and dynasties. These are two YouTube channels and these guys jump into detail. They, they love talking about the Normans in Ireland. You got guys like the Fitzgeralds, the Butlers, the Burks, and, and a bunch of others. And in some cases, they go, they, you have this phrase, more Irish than the Irish themselves. This, this going native Gaelicization, in, um, assimilation that the Normans tended to do very well. And Scotland was no exception to that. They, they come into Scotland and you have, we have those kindreds that had settled up in the Highlands and had absolutely assimilated up there. So you had the Frasers of Lovett, you have the Chisholms, you have the, um, just thought of one, you have the, um, anyway, you got a bunch of them that they, and they go, oh, the, the, I was thinking of the Stuarts. The Stuarts, they have different branches of the Stuarts and they settle up in, uh, they have one branch that becomes the Stuarts of Appen and I've talked about them in times past, the Stuarts of Athol and they become, they go native they become Highlanders. The Stuarts of Appen are absolutely a Highland clan. Um, you have Alexander Stuart, the Wolf of Badenoch, who um, seemed seemed to prefer Gallic company. I think that's a good way to say that. So anyway, they went. The Normans did a good job of going native. So let's talk about these. So you got the stop in Wales around the settle in there around eleven hundred. Oh, by the way, my source, I've got to mention my source, Amy Eberlin, who's at the University of St. Andrews. This was her PhD work, was focusing on the Flemish the Flemish in medieval Scotland. I will leave a link to that. So this is PhD work that she's been doing 
And through that link, you'll be able to find several articles that she's written on this subject. And I have not read all of them, but I've read, I don't know, three or four-ish. And they're very informative, very interesting, especially if you're descended from one of these groups. I really recommend you get in the notes, click this link, and, and begin your own research from there. So, and it's, isn't it nice that we can get some scholarly sources on this? Because we can't always, can't always find super scholarly stuff. But in this case, I, I was fortunate. That often, by the way, if you have a recommendation or a request for me to do a certain clan, which I do get it from time to time, um, my sources tend to drive what I tend to, what I want to talk about. If I can find good sources on it, then I'm more likely. So if you have awesome sources that you can pitch into it, that increases the likelihood of me being able to grab a hold of that and turn it into an episode. All right, back on back on task here. So you have this group. They stop in Wales for a generation or so, and then they push up with David I, invited by him, so to help him take his throne back, which works. And so they're given positions all over Scotland, all over. Some places more than others. The Canmore dynasty, they really liked to use these incoming Normans and put them in hot spots. And in this case, specifically Flemish people, they put them in hot spots where the native lords resented the expansion of the kings of Alaba and pushed back against that. And by the way, The Outlaws of Medieval Scotland by R. Andrew MacDonald is a great book to, to uh, learn about this time period where the kings of Alaba, or what would become Scotland, they're trying to expand. They're trying to push into the Western Isles. And so there you have them getting into Norwegian business because that area has been under Norwegian control for generations, a long time. And then you have down in the very southwest of Scotland, you have Galloway and you have Fergus, Lord of Galloway. You have Summerlit in the Isles. He's come to power. And you have up in the very far north, you have Harold Madison. And you have the remnant of the, you always see it spelled Maketh. I really think it's, the name is Mac-Eyed, the what would become the Mackays, the Mackays, the A-E-E. Or, there's different ways I've seen it. The older way is A-E-D. But I think that D was pronounced a little bit with a T-H, like I'd. And so that becomes Heth. I, 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 I've been really looking and trying to research this and trying to make that linguistic connection, but the, that may have been the McKays or the Mackays who, who, who are descended from this group of people who had rebelled against the kings of Alaba and may have been tied into the royal house of Murray. So you have these hotspots all over Scotland and these Flemish immigrants get used to put in all these frontier areas. So the Stuarts, as, as newcomers, they get pushed into the Clyde area on the south, the south bank of the Clyde estuary as it comes in. They get, they get positioned there so that they can kind of be a buffer against Summerled and his group. You have kindreds like the Bruces and Balios. Now I'm not just talking Flemish, I'm talking about just Norman general. Although I did see a list in this, in some of Amy Everland's work here where she says the Balios may have been Flemish Norgen. I haven't pursued that. There's a lot of names in there. A lot of names in there that I was like, I'm not, I don't think that one is, that one is, that one is. It, it almost kind of made it look like everybody in Scotland's descended from the Flemish. So take this for a grain of salt, but they put the, like the Bruce's and the Balliol's down in the area they did to kind of contain the natives in Galloway who tended to be a little surly at times. 
which does bring me to very specific. Well, the the Flemish the Flemish people as they come into Scotland with David the first, they're the kind of the leader, the main figure that they rally around is Baldwin of Bigger. He seems to be the leader of this group. He may be the progenitor of those who go by the Fleming surname, the actual last name Fleming. Um, I, he, he's mentioned in the Clan Fleming Wikipedia page, but then no connection is made between him and later bearers of the surname. So I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not claiming that he is for sure their ancestor. They do mention him in there. Take that for what it's worth. However, of little, we're a little bit more confident that one of the people who came in there with him from, from Pembroke in Wales and came up with him was Freskin, son of Olek. Now, Freskin is a very prominent figure. So I've kind of got two types of podcast episodes going here. I've got my my clan cluster episode where we take clans that are similar to each other and kind of talk about their connection. Often it's blood connection, but it's not always. And then we also have the clan founder episodes I've done. I've done episodes on Ghost Patrick, who the, the Humes and the Dunbars are descended from him. We've got, we talked about Summerled, the all the McDonald, McDonald's and their branches, like the McKeons of Ardnamurkin and the McAllisters, and they're all, and then the McDougals and the McRorys, and they're all descended from Summerled. This would be kind of like taking those two categories of podcast episodes and mixing them together. Because Freskin is a is a very prominent figure here. He comes in, he gets some land at Strathbrock, which I think is over more in the Lothian area. And so does Berrywald. So, so far I've mentioned these three Flemish knights, you could call them. Baldwin of Bigger, Freskin, son of Olek, and Berrywald. Freskin and Berrywald are part of the group that gets tasked to push up north to contain the rebellion in, in, of the people in Murray. And I've, I've gone into length on what's the dynamic between Murray and Alaba, and that goes back clear back to like Dalrieta days, so, some of that stuff, like with Canal Navrine and Canal Lorne. But you have, so Freskin and Berrywald are pushed, they come up the East Coast and, and they are major contributors to the Kings of Alba being able to contain that re- and suppress that rebellion. They're rewarded with lands in Murray on the South shore of the Murray Firth. So the, so Freskin becomes the progenitor of a kindred that would first call themselves de Moravia. But from this group of people would spring the Sutherland kindred or clan and the Murrays, which, and I think we're both very, we're very secure in calling those kindreds clans. And then also you have from Berrywald who obtains lands just not very far east of Freskin's lands, and you have, and, and the lands are already called Innes. And so from Innes, then you get the, the name of the, the kindred, McInnes, not McInnes. I was going to say, don't get it cons- confused with the McInneses. That's a different group. This group is just called Innes. They are Flemish and they are descended from Berrywald, who with Freskin went north to contain and suppress the rebellion and were rewarded with lands up there. So hopefully I straighten that out. You didn't get too turned around there. Now there's another person that I might mention there. 
his name is Theobald, and he have, may have been the father of William of Douglas, who was the first to style himself of Douglas, taking his name from the lands there, because Douglas has actually comes from a Gallic origin. But he, so he takes the surname from the place name, and now you have this clan who become known as the Douglases, who have a actually a Gallic last name, but are actually Flemish descent. And then another one that I just want to kind of throw out there is the Lockards, uh, the Lockards, the there's because there's somebody the L O C A R D who's supposedly with this group. And I tried to chase this down. I looked at the American Clan Lockarts, Lockart Society org, and it just regurgitates their website, which I've praised the Rutherford website. I've praised the Campbell website. The, the, the Lockarts need to step up their game here, I think. They just regurgitate the Wikipedia article or the Wikipedia article is regurgitating them, one or the other. But they both say that the founding kindred came to Scotland from England fleeing William the Conqueror. Well, they're fleeing William the Conqueror, then they are Anglo-Saxons. They weren't in the Norman contingent, whether they were actual Normans, Bretons, or, or Flemish. So I didn't, I didn't really get where they were going with that. And then, yeah, anyway, so does that where, so is this Lockhart, 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 is that where the Lockharts come from? I, I don't know, guys. But I'm just telling you there was a Flemish guy who came up whose name was Lockhart, and he may have something to do with that kindred. I'll, I'll, if you guys know the for sure answer, there's probably somebody out, out there who knows that, and you can just post the comment in down below. But anyway, you have so there you have it. There you have this core of of Flemish immigrants coming up into Scotland. They did wonderful things for David the First and his descendants, and were granted lands and titles. And now we have these kindreds that come from them. Now, let me pause real quick to give a shout out to my sponsor, USA Kilts. Guys, I've got two kilts from USA Kilts, and they're both awesome. Now, the one is admitted, admittedly higher quality. It's more expensive. That's my McFarland hunting tartan kilt. And I had that, and then I was like, well, yeah, but I, I like hiking, and kilts are perfect to hike in for all you people who are outdoorsy out there. But I, I don't know about taking my nice kilt all wool, you know, high quality out in the brush where it's dirty and twigs and things are grabbing onto it. And I don't, I don't know about that. So I went with, I also got a, one of the, the they call it a casual kilt. It's less expensive and it's made from different material. It's a little bit more resilient to stains or being grabbed by branches and stuff. So guess what? I've got two kilts. I told you the first one's in the McFarland hunting and the other one is in the the Macduff hunting. And I have a whole story about why I went with that in some previous episode. So go check it out. Guys, it's fine quality. I love both my kilts. I love the other accessories that I bought with them from them. So that my point here is that they make really nice quality stuff. If you want to express your heritage, their pride in your heritage, go to usakilts.com and get something off of there because they just have more things than I can even advertise for on here. The other thing I like you to check out is go on their youtube channel usa kilts and celtic traditions they have so much cool stuff on there if you're going to get into the kilt thing or if you recently have got into the kilt thing or if you've been in it for a while but you've never really dove into it they've got so much good content on there so go check them out also go to the um go to well they this not my point is they've got they it's not just 
kilts and episodes about kilts on their YouTube channel. They've got Scottish culture, history, all sorts of cool stuff on there. So if you want to know anything about kilts or jump into some of their cool episodes on the history and culture, go check them out. USA Kilts and Celtic Editions on YouTube. Guys, so let me do a recap here with what we've learned about the Flemish in Scotland. They came in with the Normans. There would, more, there would be more in Flemish come in later, but the ones who begat these major clans in Scotland came in with the Normans. They made a stop in Wales and Pembroke. Then with David I, they came up into Scotland where they were put in very strategic positions. You have Baldwin of Bigger, who's in the Lanark area, Lanarkshire. And he may be or may not be the progenitor of the Fleming kindred. You have... Theobald, who may be the progenitor of the Douglases, and that's the way that Amy Everlin presents it. And then you have Freskin and Berrewald, who are taken by, by to, to, used by the Scottish kings to push up north. He plants them up north because they help him quell uh, rebellion in Murray. And for their services, they seem to be very, I'm just gathering that these are very capable men, very high caliber people, and the kings of Scotch are grateful to have them. Freskin is given lands up there in Duffus, and Berrewald is given lands just to the east of that in Innes. Now, the Berrewald's descendants will take their name from Innes, and they will be, become the Innes family or the Innes clan or kindred, however you want to say it. And so the descendants of Freskin will become, they will style themselves de Moravia from in the Gallic, when you pronounce Murray, it's actually more like Murav. And so it's very actually just adding in Latin IA on the end of Murav. And that's where you have the Sutherlands come from the senior line of this kindred and the Murrays also come from this kindred. Uh, to be more specific with that, you so you have... You have Freskin, and then you have his son, William. Then you also have, he has two sons, Hugh and William. Hugh becomes Lord Sutherland, and that's where we get the Sutherland kindred, who become an actual clan, once again, very integrated into the Highlands. There is, if you, um, the genealogical history of the Earldom of Sutherland, which is a contemporary 1600s, is written in 1600s by a Gordon, and the Gordons actually inherited the earldom of Sutherland and the leadership of the Sutherland kindred. So that's interesting because that not all that didn't happen all the time. Like with Ross, you had the earldom of Sutherland that went out of the family, but they kept the leadership of the kindred in-house. So there's a couple of different ways, and I've done episodes on that too before. But the but this, so this earldom of Sutherland, the Sutherland, this, the, the main core of the Sutherland clan would have been descended from Freskin, from his older son, Hugh, while the Murrays descend from his son, William. And then he had another son named Andrew who became the parson of Duffus, and I didn't really see anything about his descendants and who they became. So if you've got something on that, add it to the conversation. Guys, that's all I got for you. Here's, so we have Douglas, Innes, Sutherland, and Murray who comes very, very prominent 
Scottish clans. And there's a bunch of other minor ones. So go check out Amy Everland's work on the University of St. Andrews website. Follow the link I'm going to include in the, in the comments here. And there's uh, there's so much more to read on this. So there you go. I've given you a lot of, if you want to dive into this farther, a lot of resources to do that with. Um, guys, I've got a lot of things cooking on this. So I'm excited for what I've got coming in the future. We've got an, I'm working on an online course on the origin of the Scottish clans. I've got uh, I've got a, some free some free PDFs. I I tried I did a little test on this. My sister actually did it for me. And so if you want to go on Scottish-clans.com forward slash 1587, 1587, you can get a PDF of the government, um, the Act of Parliament, and in it are named a bunch of the clans in there and why they're listing these clans. And it's cool to see 1500s. There's some really interesting things that you can actually gain a lot from in your study of the Scottish clans by looking at who the government had their eye on. And it mentions Highland clans and border clans, 1587. So that's scottish-clans.com forward slash 1587. And then I just have another one recently that's a PDF on general wage report on the Highlands. And that one is at scottish-clan.com scottish-clans.com forward slash wade if you want general wage report on the highlands which also has a ton of cool lists how many men each highland chief could bring to battle and, and all that stuff so go check them out and until next time modern live and good stuff.